You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 and find verse 15. Miss Robin just read 15 through 17 for us. We'll be in verse 15 this morning. We will be in verses 16 and 17 next Sunday. My dad is a pastor, and he started pastoring a church in Duncanville, Texas, uh, the year I was born. And he was a pastor for almost all of my life, say for about three years. And then even after graduating high school, I was connected to a church in college. And then Carrie and I, after we got married, started attending uh, the village in Highland Village. And then from there, I went on staff uh, at a church. And then from there, back to the village. And all of that to say, uh, I have spent... Uh, the large majority of Sunday mornings of my life gathered with the people of God in a church building, singing to God, hearing God's word preached. And um, the last three months has marked the longest stretch of my life when I have not gathered with the people of God on a Sunday morning. And I'm grateful for the technology and us being able to, you know, to do worship in home. But even even masks and distancing and protocols and guidelines. It is so good to be with you, church. It is so good to be with you. And good to be gathered in the same place. And and I know most of us are still at home watching through a screen. Just know that this marks the beginning of our new normal and the beginning of reopening. And so we look forward to the day when we're back to multiple services and uh, not this much space, even though I know for some of you, this is what you've always wanted, this much space in between the row, which is nice. So anyway, it is good to see you. It's good to not be preaching to a camera. Uh, I'm praying this morning that you are a little more responsive than the camera was the last three months. Colossians three fifteen. Oh, and also happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. So grateful for you. And I am mindful of, uh, of a few people in my life, but, but I know that this probably applies to more than just the people that I'm mindful of, that for many, maybe this day is a mixture of celebration and sadness. Maybe for you, this is the first Father's Day without Dad, and so just know that I'm thinking of you, and more importantly than that, that God is thinking of you, that your Heavenly Father uh, is near to you, especially to those uh, who these, where these holidays hold kind of that tension of celebration and longing or celebration and grieving. God knows that about you, my friend, and He loves you. Colossians 3.15, there are two questions this morning from verse 15 of chapter 3 that I want to lay before us, that I want to lay over verse 15, and and they are uh, these two questions right here at the very beginning. Are you Christian? Are you a person of peace? Are we, Citizens Church, are we a people of peace? So from verse 15, the two questions, are you a person of peace? Are we a people of peace. We've been in the book of Colossians for some time now. This wonderful book has sustained us in ways I didn't even know we would need it to. Uh, In the last several weeks, we've been having a conversation about change, about what it looks like to be conformed as Christians into the image of God's Son, what it looks like to become like Jesus. And for the last several weeks, that's meant we are learning to love the way that Jesus loved, to love God and to love others the way that Jesus loved God and loves 
others. And we see that defined in verse 12. It's patience and humility and meekness. And defined in verse 13, it's bearing with one another, saying to one another, I am with you and for you, even and especially when it's hard because I want my life to make your life look like Jesus. It's forgiving one another the way that we have been forgiven in Jesus. And that's what it means to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus. And then we get another word in verse 15. Verse 15 marks a turn, and what Paul says here to the church in Colossae, what God says here to our church here in Collin County is that to look like Jesus means your life is marked by peace, that the peace of Christ rules over your life. And so peace is the subject today, and here's what I know, uh, that these are not times of peace in our world that uh, if you just think about the year so far, what has marked 2020, and if you were to just think of the words that come to mind, it's, it's probably loss and pain and injustice and disease and distance. I asked our staff this week, I said, what word, if you had to pick one word that sums up 2020, what would that word be? And the responses I got were tumultuous and exhausting and sad and depressing. And my favorite was from Emily Lemke, who just said, oof, <laughs> which I think is the noise you make when you get the wind knocked out of you. And it's completely appropriate. And not all the words were necessarily negative, but no one said, when I think of 2020, the word that comes to mind is the word peace, right? And I don't mean necessarily in your life. I just mean if we're paying attention to the headline and the state of the world, the state of the world right now is chaos. And because the state of the world is chaos, we even feel that now in the room. We're wearing masks. We're separated from one another. Most of our church is not with us. They're watching from home. And, and, and so in that, a sermon on peace could feel a little tone deaf right now. Um, maybe it would seem more appropriate to just skip verse 15 and come back to it when things have maybe toned down a bit. Or maybe, and this is what I want to contend for together, maybe when the state of the world is so clearly chaos, it's in times like these when the church of Jesus needs to be reminded of something. That what we see over and again in the Bible is that for those who belong to God, when the state of the world is chaos, the state of the Christian is peace. When the state of the world is chaos, the state of the church is peace, or at least the pursuit of peace. I can make the point with a very familiar psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I have no lack. He leads me, he makes me lie down, he restores me. Why? Because everything in my life is going really well. No. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't know where that is, but it doesn't sound peaceful. Even though the state of my circumstances might be chaos, even though the state of the world might be chaos, uh, my heart is at peace because God is with me. His rod and his staff comfort me. Goodness and mercy will follow me, and I will be with the God of peace forever. To be with and to be loved by God means, friend, that peace is always available to us, even when it's chaos that surrounds us. In the command of peace here, this is so interesting, I was encouraged, challenged, reminded of this this week, even here, the command of peace first fell on a group of Christians who knew chaos and were in the middle of chaotic times, 
When Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae, they're in a very similar place to where we find ourselves in Collin County. If I could just remind us of the setting, and you tell me if it sounds familiar to you. They're under Roman rule as a Roman colony. The mission statement of the Roman Empire was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it was peace by way of a sword, peace by way of conquest. And so for many people, it was no peace at all. It was a harsh peace. And so if you are a a citizen of Rome, there were a lot of benefits for you. If you're not, it made you vulnerable. It made you oppressed. And so there are people in Colossae who say Rome is really good for the world. And then people in Colossae who would say Rome is destroying the world. And so can you imagine the political tension that exists in the living room when Paul pins these words of peace? Colossae, when Paul writes to this church, was in an economic downturn. They used to be a cross-section on a major trade route, and business used to be thriving, and their economy was flourishing. And when the Romans rebuilt the roads, they rebuilt the routes to circumvent Colossae. And so what they're seeing is, is where business used to come to them, they're now having to go find business. And so people are losing jobs. The economy is shriveling. Can you imagine the economic uncertainty in the living room when this letter's read? It was a diverse city. A combination of Jew and Gentile, a combination of rich and poor, all different kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds and different races and different standings in society. We know that because in verse 11, just a few verses above verse 15 where we're at, he has to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. In the economy of the kingdom, Christ is all and is in all and all have equal standing with God and equal access to God and are equally loved by God, which means those who belong to God do not dishonor one another, but they honor and esteem and value one another. And the reason he has to say that to this church is because even in the church, the posture of the sinful heart is to treat as less than those who are not like me. And so a world marked by political tension, a world marked by economic uncertainty, a world marked by hostility and injustice around race and class is a chaotic world. Does it sound familiar? And Paul, inspired by the spirit of the living God, writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule over your church. When the state of the world is chaos, let the peace of Christ rule your life. When the state of the world is chaos, let the peace of Christ rule our church. So are you, friend, a person of peace? Are we, church, a people of peace? Let's consider verse 15 together. I'll read it again. It says this, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Peace of Christ is the subject in this short verse, so let's define it. What does it mean? You could tell the entire story of the Bible by tracing the theme of peace from beginning to end. God creates, and his first creative act is bringing peace to chaos. It says, in the beginning uh, was God. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth, and they were formless and void. They lacked order. Chaos was present. And God's creative activity was bringing order to that chaos, bringing peace. And that describes the state of the world. The Hebrew world is, is shalom, that the culture of God's creation, his perfect world, was this shalom culture. If we think about the way David described peace in Psalm 23, he says he has this peace, and the peace is him having God. He's my shepherd. I lack nothing. So peace 
The kind of peace that God offers is not just the absence of conflict. It's not just the absence of fear. It's not just the absence of anxiety. The shalom peace of God is the absence of absence. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, meaning I am whole and I am complete. And when God fashions his perfect world, he threads it with his shalom peace throughout because it was complete and whole and needed nothing and lacked nothing. And then sin enters the world and peace is fractured. Chaos is re-unleashed out into the world and reintroduced into the world through the rebellion of God's image bearers. And then those image bearers who are supposed to perpetuate peace, perpetuate idolatry and perpetuate violence. And from Genesis 3 on, God is on mission to restore peace to his world. And that peace culminates in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and peace fills his life in the kind of uh, peace that reorders the world, that rewrites the world, follows him everywhere he goes. I've started coming back up to the church for work most days, some days, and when I come home from work, I can tell where my kids have been in the home by what they've left behind. So if I walk into the kitchen and there's a pile of Legos in the kitchen, it means that Asher played in the kitchen because that's what he does. If there's a pile of stuffed animals in the living room, then that means that Addie played in the living room. And where I walk into the house and there's an unexplainable mess, toys, Cheerios, kitchen utensils, car keys, my passport, clothes, that's where Ayla was. Because that's where she's at in life, right? Just leaves a, a, a very um, eclectic mess wherever she goes. And I know where they have spent time in the house based on what they've left behind. I know where, they're, where they have been present because the marks of their presence are there even when they're gone. And you know in the Bible and in our lives now, you know where Jesus has been because wherever he has spent time, you will find peace. He brings peace with him. He leaves peace when he goes. You can tell where he's been in the world. You can tell what homes he has been in. You can tell what churches he rules over because where he has been, you will find peace. You can't read about his life without being interrupted by the peace that he brings. When his birth is announced by heaven, the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Throughout his life, he would step into the mess of somebody's uh, disease or somebody's sin or somebody's brokenness or somebody's blindness, and he would heal someone or he would forgive someone, and his parting words were, go in peace. John 16, 33, before his death, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When the state of the world is tribulation and when the state of the world is pain, in me, Jesus says, not in the world, but in me, you can have peace. And then I love this. John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He's crucified, 
His disciples are hiding, and it's Sunday morning, and this is what we just read. It's their reunion with the resurrected Jesus. He walks into the room, a friend they thought they lost forever, a savior they thought had been defeated. He opens his mouth, and they're going to hang on whatever word comes out. He opens his mouth, and they're going to remember forever his first words after defeating death, and a risen Jesus with the power of life over death and all authority in heaven and on earth from his resurrected lips. He speaks peace. Peace be with you. The peace of Christ is the restorative power that Jesus and only Jesus has as the one who conquered death to make the world right again, Uh, to restore peace. God who subdued chaos before creation and filled his world with peace is now subduing the chaos in this world of sin and hostility and through Jesus bringing new creation. And he can change hearts and he can reconcile people. The peace of Christ is the power of Jesus to make the world the way it was supposed to be, to make my life and your life the way it was supposed to be, to make our church the way God intends for it to be. And what does it do? Let the peace of Christ please hear me, rule. Let it rule over your hearts and let it rule over your church. That's what he means when he says you've been united in one body. So there's two ways it rules. It rules over your life personally and it rules over our lives as a church corporately. In the one direction of his life, his rule, his peace, ruling over our hearts personally has just been so helpful for me. It's an interesting word to connect to peace, right? Uh, It helps me know that in the pursuit of peace, there's room for struggle. I've shared this before, but I had a friend who was struggling with their faith, and kind of in a moment of desperation and exasperation, they said, I signed up for the peace that surpasses understanding, and it just never came. And the comment struck me immediately as just being so honest and struck me immediately as something that I've felt before and have experienced before. Um, It feels like the assumption so often when it comes to the peace of God is that if the peace of God is real, then it will come easy. That the peace of God will mean no more moments of anxiety or no no more moments of fear, no more moments of worry and no more seasons of worry, no more seasons of anxiety. And that's just not reality. At least it's not my reality. Carrie and I are driving to a friend's birthday party last night. She's asking me how I feel about this morning. Hey, how are you feeling about Sunday morning? And my first response was, I'm feeling a little anxious about it. Excited, encouraged, hopeful, and also a little anxious, which always tends to happen when I'm about to preach on peace, ironically. But maybe you find yourself, even at the word peace, as we start the service this morning, and I'm talking about peace, maybe you find yourself a bit unnerved because it feels so far from where you're at. And here's what I want to submit to you, my friend. I want to submit to you that the language we read, the language of rule, leaves room for that to be a struggle. It doesn't say, let the peace of Christ settle on your hearts like some sort of uh, switch that you flip and it never turns off. No, no, no. Let the peace of Christ rule. And rule is a submission word. Rule is a control word. Rule isn't easy. In fact, the tense of this word is present, active, indicative, meaning it's an ongoing pursuit. And so would you see a bit of irony with me that the peace of Christ is something that you fight for? And the peace of Christ is something that you surrender to. Let it rule. There is a relationship 
between peace and control. I think we know that, but where we get it so often get lost is we believe the lie that the relationship between peace and control is that the more control we have, the more peace we have. And that's not it. Peace is not about the control we possess. Peace is about the control we submit to. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't you love that verse? Love songs about that verse? Love reading that verse? Where does that rest come from? My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The rest of Jesus comes from the yoke of Jesus. You know what a yoke is? Of course you do. This is Texas. The yoke is the instrument. It was this harness that you lay over the neck of the animal so that you can get them to go where you want them to go. The yoke is an instrument of control. And so Jesus says, come to me for rest, and you will find rest where? Under my control, under my rule, by submitting your life to where I tell you to go and submitting your life to what I tell you to value and submitting your life to loving what I tell you to love and loving the way that I tell you to love and submitting your life to becoming who I say that you should become. And the lie, friends, the lie is that we can get the rest without the yoke. The lie is that we can have the peace without the rule. Because I want peace, and yet I want to find that peace by being the one in charge, by ruling my life, which always means I volunteer for a yoke that is harsh and heavy and ignore the one that is easy and light. So I want peace, right? And I want to find the rest of Jesus and the peace of Christ, but I'm going to find it by wearing the yoke of success, and by uh, finding meaning in my job or in my accomplishments, and I'm going to be run into the ground by that yoke trying to find it, and then I'm going to be run into the ground by that yoke trying to keep it. Or I will wear the yoke of self-righteousness and trying to keep the commands of Christ outside of relationship with Christ or keep the commands of Christ outside of the grace of Christ, and I'm going to be run into the ground by my own pride when I'm doing well, and then I'm going to be run into the ground by my own shame when I fail, or I'm going to wear the yoke of approval and try to find rest in the opinions of others. I'm going to be run into the ground trying to carry the weight of everyone else's expectations that I can't possibly meet, or I'm going to wear the yoke of control, and I'm going to say, I am going to find peace under my own rule and will be run into the ground trying to be God when I'm not. Let the peace of Christ rule your life. Take his yoke Jesus will not lead you astray. Every word he says is true. His commands are for you, not against you. He will not run you into the ground. He asks for faithfulness, not perfection. He offers grace, not condemnation. And make no mistake, you do not get the rest without the yoke. You do not get the peace without the rule. And what that means is the ongoing struggle This is why I say there's room for struggle. What that means is the ongoing struggle of letting his peace bear on our life, regardless of the chaos in our life. What if some of the anxiety and restlessness in our lives is trying to alert us to something, trying to warn us of something? 
What if we're trying to bear a yoke we have already been freed from and the anxiety and the restlessness is Jesus trying to turn us back to the peace we already have and the peace that we can't lose? I love the scene of the resurrected Jesus walking into the room where the disciples are hiding. I love the the thought that they think Jesus is still in the tomb. Peter had denied him. The rest of them had abandoned him. And he walked into the room on a Sunday morning and he walked into their grief and into their fear and into their regret. And he opened his mouth and he spoke peace. How that changed everything for them. How that inspired them. How that deployed them into the world with courage and fearlessness. How that word. I wonder if the conversation from there was them reminding one another in the chaos in the world. Do you remember when Jesus walked in the room and spoke peace to us? Do you remember when we were so afraid? Do you remember when we were so filled of shame? Do you remember when he needed us to stay with him and we fled from him? And yet when he conquered death and walked into the room, all he had to say was peace. Christian, he spoke the same word to you. The moment you believed, he walks into the room of your doubt and into the room of your failure and into the room of your sin and into the room of your hostility and chaos and he offers his side and he opens his mouth and he speaks peace to you and he speaks peace over you. There is no hostility between you and God. He is your shepherd. You lack nothing. He comforts you. He's with you. You've been made whole. And even now as I speak to you, Jesus, your priest, speaks peace over you. You are one. You are one. You are part of the world that he is restoring to what it was meant to be. And maybe to submit to the rule of his peace is to not let your heart and mind feed the chaos that he's already overcome. So my question, are you a person of peace? Is not, are you a person who always feels at peace? Our hearts are deceptive, untrustworthy. Our feelings are fleeting, but are you a person who remembers often the unchanging peace that exists between you and God because of Jesus? It is irrevocable, it is yours forever, and it is unthreatened regardless of how chaotic things might be. And are we, church, a people of peace? You know, as I've been just observing the world in what seems to so clearly be an increasing polarization in the world, in an increasing division in the world, an increasing hostility in the world. I have wondered more and more, not for the first time, but especially much more in the last month, I have wondered what it means for the church to be a place that fights to preserve peace. And I wonder if of all of the very good and right issues and the very good and right and timely needs of the world that we can address together and we want to address together, I wonder if the one that is as important is what does it mean to preserve peace together despite our disagreements. And look, what I don't mean is I don't mean a false peace. I don't mean let's just agree to disagree And I don't mean the kind of relativism that lacks conviction, right? So bear with me. There's more that needs to be said here than I have time for. Here's what I want to return to. A couple weeks ago at the beginning of service, the way the sentiment came out of my heart was just wanting to fight against the charge. 
or fight against the drift or fight against the reality that there could be more of the spirit of the world in our church than the spirit of our church in the world. God help us. God help us. He has more for us than that. And so that, 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 that means in a climate where the natural reaction, the knee-jerk reaction is to disown when we disagree, to demonize when we disagree, to meet disagreement with cancel and with shame. What does it mean for a church to be prophetic in a time like that? What does it mean for a church to shine, to be a beacon of the peace of Christ in a time like that? And I don't have all the answers, but I think from this verse we're offered some help that what will guide us through the chaos of hostility and what will guide us through the, the, the chaos of uncertainty is to remember that we treat one another as if Jesus is in the room, because He is. And Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule over the body. The language is, would you treat one another as if Jesus in the peace of Jesus is present with you now, because it is. It's Father's Day, and I have a wonderful dad. He's a godly man. Many of you have, have met him or heard from him. He's the son of a plumber, the grandson of a farmer, didn't have an easy life. He's a first-generation Christian who literally changed the, line, the trajectory of his biological lineage. The name Roller means something different today than it did decades ago because of the grace of God that interrupted my dad's life and my dad's obedience and faithfulness to him. And this isn't the point, but it's Father's Day and we're here. Dad's you have a tremendous God-given capacity for influence in the life of your children. And that influence will lay a path towards Jesus, or that influence will lay a path away from Jesus. And you can't make them walk the path, but you will lay one. And just reflecting on my dad's life, my dad walked and then laid a path that pointed his children to Jesus, and, and it, it changed a family. It changed a family. And it's such a joy to know. It is such a joy to know about so many of you, church, uh, and, and so many of your stories of the dads in this church. You are a lineage-changing dad, the same lineage-changing dad that my father was to me. You are to your children, and I just want you to know to keep going. It's worth it. You won't regret it. The work of laying the path that leads to Christ is one of the greatest ambitions of your life, not just as a father, but as a human. That was my 90-second Father's Day sermon, which is the way fathers always want their Father's Day sermons. <laughs> my dad was a godly man. Uh, we honored and we respected him. He commanded honor and respect, and he commanded gratitude in my home. And here's one of the things that was true, that uh, my siblings and I fought a lot together. We interacted differently with one another when dad was in the room, very differently. We didn't speak the same way to one another. We fought, but we fought differently when he was there. We inter he would come home from work. He would walk into the room, and there was a palpable difference his presence made on the way that we interacted with one another. And, 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 and things that I had done earlier in the day, I became embarrassed of when he was in the room, right? Because how we treated one another, if he was there... How we treated one another in his presence was a reflection of what we believed, not just about each other, but about him. How could it not be? His presence, if you will, ruled over our interactions. 
His presence ruled over the way that we treated one another. He came in town last week to help me fix some stuff around our house, which means he fixed things and I encouraged him. <laughs> and, uh, and I noticed in that moment, even still, that I am mindful of how I act when he's around. Not in a fearful way, but, but as a way to, that sought to honor him, one who'd done so much and been so faithful and whose love had been so present and is so present and so constant. And I think that's what the Bible is getting at here. Would we treat one another as if Jesus is in the room, always in the room, because he is. He's promised his presence to us. And so the perfect, pure Savior King who died and rose to think of how different conversation would be and to think of how different conflict would be if his presence ruled over the room, if we saw one another through the lens of Jesus sitting with us, if we saw one another through the lens of our shared Savior sitting with us in the same space, both of us in need of him, both of us covered in his blood, shed for our sin, both of us confessing our love for him and our allegiance to to him and our hope in him, how careful would we be with our words? How much slower to speak in our anger? How much more eager to listen? How hesitant would we be to disown one whom Jesus gave his life for and who he has pledged his irrevocable promise to? How empty would slander feel on our lips? Let the peace of Christ rule He is in the room, ruling and watching and reigning and bringing his peace. How much different would that be for our marriages? What would that mean for our community? What church would it mean for us to interact with one another? We would become a people of peace who disagree without disowning, dismissing, dishonoring. Become a people of peace who asks the question about every word or every post or every outburst, would I respond the same if my Savior were here? And oh, to pursue that together, to be a beacon of peace to the world of chaos because Christ is present among us, rules over us, and what a statement that would be to the world of the presence of Jesus among us. If that marks us, then you will not be able to ignore that Jesus has been here. Because where Jesus has been, he leaves behind him peace. And in a world of chaos, might we become people in a place of peace together. Because the Prince of Peace, the peace of Christ, rules over our lives. God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. Would you make us, would you make me, God, a person of peace? And not asking in that God for some sort of unrealistic standard that that there's never moments of worry or seasons of worry, but asking God that what would reign over my life is not the fear and not the anxiety, but what would reign and rule over my life is that I trust you, Jesus, the one who brings peace, has secured peace, and will not fail for your glorious kingly, sovereign peace to heal this world. Lord, would you make us as a church a people of peace, God? Not uh, a people who tolerate one another. Not a people who ignore one another, God. But would you make us a people 
who have been united not around having everything in common, not about seeing everything the same way, but would you make us a people united around a common love and a shared story because you died for us, you rose again, and your peace supersedes over our lives. Would we live today and tomorrow and the rest of the week and the rest of this year believing you're in the room, your peace rules and reigns, Help us. We love you. Amen.